0: Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 165 The Admirable admiral this episode of craft lit is brought to you by knitting out loud listen while you knit also knit circus featuring three rings of fun you can visit knit circus at knitcircus.com also Craftlit and holiday travel take you to london bath and wales this fall october 2nd through 9th 2010 Go to craftlit.com to get more information and find out about how you can join us on our trip this fall. Law! Hello! I am so, so happy to be here with you today. It is a gorgeous sunny day here in the Old Pueblo, and it's feeling very springy. It's warm, but it's not hot. We actually have had a a cloudy day earlier this week. I know that doesn't sound very shocking to most of you who are still... um, Living with snorkeling gear on in the northeast, but uh, but here it is quite something to have a day that is cloudy all the way through. We don't usually do that. We get rain in the afternoon, or rain in the evening, or rain in the morning, but we rarely have uh, a storm or a cloud system come and sit on us. And we did, so you know that was fun for a bit, and then uh, and then it went away. And now it's sunny again. And as I am still working on the toes to the socks that I'm designing for the upcoming book, I don't have a whole lot of crafty news for you. It's really rather sad. I, I swatched, I was a good kid and I swatched and I had all of my designs, you know, the the cuff and the heel and the toe, I had it all done, I had it all planned out. It was all just fine until I actually started in on the toe and it just combined with the other design elements, the swatch just didn't look right anymore as part of an actual sock instead of kind of a temporal sock. So I, uh, I have ripped the toe out now, and you know I'm not a ripper. I ripped it out now six times. I'm on my sixth. To- well, I ripped it out five times. I'm on my sixth Thank God the yarn is holding up. I've, I've been using, uh, for those of you who recall the 2009 Craft Lit Challenge, I have been using some of these scarlet letter yarn, that gorgeous, bright, scarlet red um, wool silk blend from, um, from Meg at March Hare. Meg, who is now in Italy for the foreseeable future. So, I think, you know, after we're done with uh, London, Bath, and Wales, I think perhaps we should plan a trip over to Northern Italy. What say you, eh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what Italian literature we could do, um, that I could have anything useful to say. I, I mean, you know, certainly Frankenstein, uh, was close to... <laughs> Or in Italy. I'm really pushing it. Um, ooh, my dad was there though. My dad was in um, in the Alps in oh heck where was it in uh, Victor Frankenstein's home and stomping grounds. I asked him to check and see if there were any statues to Mary Shelley or kind of in memoriam Victor types of things but I haven't seen him since he got back so I can't report back to you on that yet. However I do have a lot of newsy news because I I told you for the last two episodes that I had been reading and saving a bunch of emails that had been, been coming in that I, I simply just didn't have time to uh, respond to or put on the podcast. The iPhone application, for those of you who've been listening straight through, instead of jumping in uh, new or in the middle or flipping around, which I know plenty of people do, not a problem. Do what you must. But, for those of you who have the iPhone application, i um every once in a while I go in and I check, uh, I check the reviews, I check to make sure that there aren't any problems. I check to make sure that my iPhone app works every time that I upload a new podcast. And for most people, I know the iPhone application was working just swimmingly. And then, in the second week of March, they migrated all of the episodes. For craftlet that are on a server somewhere in the ethers they migrated them all to a new storage facility and a new interface and all sorts of bad things started to happen uh, as far as my iphone application went all of the extras disappeared um oh, a bunch of different bits and pieces just stopped working but it turns out that th- those things <coughs> fell apart the day that um one of the listeners purchased and started to use the iPhone application. And the review said quite rightly that it was very frustrating because it seemed that the iPhone application wasn't designed with the user in mind because there was no background play. And by background play, I mean that if you are on an iPhone or an iTouch, one of the, the be- or an iPad now, one of the benefits is that if you are listening to the um, iTunes the the iPod application. You should be able to, at the same time, go and check your mail or go and read your email or go and play TMZ or, you know, any one of a number of things. And you should still be able to listen while you're doing those other things. That function died right before this listener purchased it. So, here's what I did. I got on the little iPhone iTouch application store, and one of the things you can do is you can, from, from when you're looking at the Craftlit app for downloading, you can write a review or you can report a problem. I wrote a review saying, she's right, that's wrong, that shouldn't be happening, please check. And then I wrote a uh, report a problem thing the report problem doesn't come to me directly. It goes straight to the people who designed the application. If it's a problem that I need to deal with, they then forward that information to me. If the problem is theirs, then they deal with it. So if you have the iPhone or iTouch application, and I know there's a three or four hundred of you already who do, please double check and see if background play works for you. If it doesn't, Please report a problem via the application or via, don't email the show because then it comes to me and it, it doesn't do you any good. Go to the uh, application store, type in a search for Craftlet, get the app, get the screen, and scroll down to the bottom where you can see the little screenshots and then report a problem. Please let them know that you were testing this function. It is one of the reasons I agreed to do the goofy little application in the first place. And if they can't get this to work, then I'm gonna have to have a little chat with them uh and on that same application note I know that they are working on the uh, Droid the Google phone and the Blackberry doing applications for those three other platforms and I think um I think Lyman Violet just got their iPhone application going too so they're and oh and uh Knitmore Girls they have a they have an iPhone application up. So I think more, more and more of the, the knitting podcasts are, um, are getting into the, the swing of that iPhone iTouch thing. And of course, now that the iPad is out, it's just... I heard, oh, horrible news. I don't know if this was apocryphal or not, but I heard that UPS trucks were getting jacked yesterday and people were stealing the um, iPad boxes, which I just, I thought was horrible. Those poor UPS guys and women. I see, we have a UPS guy who comes, and then we have a UPS gal who comes, and they are our regular, regular people, so, so, ew, horribleness, but, oh, a couple of other nifty things. I have, uh, I have a link now on the show notes to the Claire Harmon interview. She's the one who wrote the biography on Jane Austen on NPR. There was, uh, Linda Wertheimer interviewed her, which was very exciting, and, Oh yes, so I have, you can hear me rattling my papers in the background, I have some really cool stuff to read to you. That is about the show. One of our readers, uh, Crispian, uh, wrote and asked if I had thought about serializing Dracula. (laughs) And the answer is yes. Yes, I have thought about doing Dracula. We've got Persuasion to Finish. We're actually ahead on my persuasion timeline. And then we're going to do Connecticut Yankee, which I'm listening to right now, along with persuasion. And, uh, oh gosh, it's so good. I know some of you have said, oh, I hate Twain. And I really encourage you, if you have stuck with me through other books that you thought you might not like, and you have learned that that was not true, that you actually did like those books, I really sincerely hope that you stick with me for Mark Twain because this is not Tom Sawyer. It's just not. It's just not. Oh, it's so good. It's brutal. And you'll laugh out loud. I also got an email from Katie who wrote to say uh, that she had found a a site that explains how bamboo is turned into fabric and and into yarn. And I am putting the link up that she sent to me. The other thing Katie wrote to me I did not know this, and it's suddenly making parts of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio play make a lot more sense to me. She wrote, and I'm going to read this to you, also I'm an American and I live in the UK. I've been meaning to mention this to you for months now ever since I heard about your trip to London Bath and Wales, so that you and your fellow travelers would be aware. As you know, there are lots of linguistic differences between the UK and the US, but one that I had never heard of before moving here, and which very few people seem to know about, is the definition of the word quite. I think the best way to explain this is to give you the story of how I happen to find out about this difference in definitions. Note, all of the people in this story are British except for me here we go about a month into my relationship with my then boyfriend now husband he took me to meet his best friend Malcolm we'd been chatting and then sat down to dinner and started eating and I said "Mm, this is quite good and Malcolm looked totally shocked and exclaimed quite good confused I said yes it's very good this calmed Malcolm but it was then explained to me that to say something is quite good is to really say that it's just a bit better than okay it does not mean very good in Britain There isn't really a good translation for quite good, but it is definitely not a compliment, and to say that someone's cooking is quite good is, in fact, an insult. The Brits seem to use a particular tone of voice when saying something is quite good that I find very hard to reproduce, but can definitely hear. So if you say to a Brit that something is quite good, you are actually saying that it was just a bit better than mediocre. Further, in the UK, quite in any context does not mean very. They say it so frequently over here that most Americans pick up saying quite all the time very quickly. However, it turns out that most of us are using it incorrectly to mean very, whilst the Brits are using it to mean something rather different. I try not to use quite at all, but occasionally it comes out automatically, and my husband will often clarify with the question, British quite or American quite? As this difference has seemed so obscure, my husband and I have asked lots of other British people about it, and they all agree that quite never means very. So, interesting linguistic lesson, no. So, thank you, Katie. That's actually quite useful. And um, Katie, have you contacted Diane, the, the travel agent for holiday travel, or me, as it were, for, um, to find out if you can hook up with us? Also, Leanne emailed from the show notes, the contact page is finally working again on the show notes, and she gave me a link to an XKCD, if you haven't seen XKCD comics, they're really quite wonderful. Uh, (laughs) It's just a very funny little comic, and it relates to one of our books, so I will put that link up, and you will be able to watch that. And then, one last piece of newsy information, and then on to persuasion. Here is the information. I mentioned a few episodes ago that a number of things are brewing in the House of Craftlit, and I said that I'd be uh, announcing them later. They're not up yet, but I am now officially in the announcing phase, and the announcing phase goes like this. One, me... Heather, host of Craftlit, Another uh, friend of mine who runs Studiographia, which is the uh, freelancers collective that I write for, uh, she is also a workshop leader in journaling, like, you know, creative journaling and, uh, and creative writing. And then you also know that I have my friend Scott Brick, who is the um, books on tape reader, uh, often for, I think it's HarperCollins, but is that right? I can't remember. But um, the three of us are going to get together and we are starting to work on a Craftlit live weekend. What this would be is you fly to or drive to a soon to be disclosed location and you spend a weekend with the three of us listening to Scott read books talking about the books a la craftlet, except instead of me just talking at you we all talk together in the room and then doing some writing scrapbooking creating stuff so you could sit there and knit the whole time and skip the writing you could sit there and sketch while you're listening to scott read and then take your sketches and turn them into a journal entry there's all sorts of different ways that you can play this out because of course not everyone is a knitter or a sketcher or a drawer. The one thing that we really can't provide you with is clay. I mean, I can bring Sculpey, I suppose, but you know, there's not really like a throwing wheel, but pretty much anything else, quilting, crocheting, knitting, sewing, you name it. So the Craft Live weekend, um, we are waiting to have our dates finalized, but it's looking like it's going to happen this summer. One of the reasons we're doing it this summer is because the ticket prices, both airfare and hotel, will be less expensive this way. And we, we've been trying very hard to figure out a way to do this that won't break people's banks. So, even if you can't go to London Bath and Wales, and there are still a couple of seats left, maybe you'd be able to do a craft live weekend. It would be a long weekend, like a Thursday night we'd have a reception and then leave Sunday afternoon. So so that's one of the things that's coming up. And if you check the craftlit.com website and look at workshops and classes, you will see more information popping up or you can go and register on the Craftlit website and then I will be emailing um, newsletter information to all the people who register so that you will know what's happening as it happens. So that's number one, the workshops. Number two, ebooks. Uh, I've over the years, over the last four years, because we're about to hit our four-year anniversary, I have been getting email off and on, over and over, from teachers, teachers who actually listen to the podcast before they teach the books in their own classrooms, and it occurred to me that one of the things that would be useful for teachers. Because we always seem to get surprised, we English teachers, by our assistant principals the day before school starts when they say, oh, you know, I was going to have you teach American Lit, but that isn't going to work out. So now you're doing um, British literature. They don't seem to understand that having read a book does not mean that you know how to teach it. It takes longer and it's more complicated. I am creating eBooks based on the podcast that will include all of the the notes that I give before each chapter, but also more specific kind of how to teach these chapters information. But my goal is to create, and I'm, I'm almost done with the first one, is to create a, a series of ebooks that if, for example, you got broadsided the day before school and you hadn't even read, let's say Flatland before, but you found out that that's what you're going to have to teach tomorrow, you could open my ebook that morning skim over a few notes, and then literally use the the pages, the instructions, the handouts that I provide for you without ever having read the book. Um, teachers, especially English teachers, just get flattened far too often with people not understanding how hard it is to, to do this part of the process. Classroom management is easy compared to figuring out how to teach, you know, endymion. So, that's the second thing. Those ebooks are going to go up for sale on the website uh, in rolling order. I'm going to start with a short one and then move on to uh, longer ones. But that way, I can get them out to you. I'm hoping to get them all out by the end of summer, so that in the fall, teachers will have access to them if uh, if you need them. So, that's the second thing. The last thing is this. You know, kind of becoming, I'm blathering, kind of becoming the master of your own domain for someone who grew up as a a teacher and the daughter of teachers, it's very scary kind of entering this world of working for yourself. It's also very wonderful, but but I'm definitely moving that direction, and you guys are kind of going there with me, so... So, there it is. The last piece of this Becoming the Master of My Domain (laughs) section is um, writing. Not my writing, but yours. After having uh, three years of, yeah, three years of college students at the end of class with me, you know, when they've graduated and everything, when they come back to me and say, can I please pay you to tutor me? Or can I please pay you to just you know, kind of like a retainer so that when I need you, I can email you a draft or ask for help or, you know, fill in the blank. That, that happens enough, you start to pay attention. And I have, you know, I have a cohort of teacher friends and writing friends who I work with all the time and who I have worked with, past tense, for decades actually, in some cases. And we've all had this happen to us after after teaching classes. And so, finally, my husband and I were talking, and it was one of those, you know, thwack yourself in the head moments, when we realized that I need to uh, set up a, 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 a kind of like a tutoring service, but but it's really a writing service for um, kids and for adults. You know, if if you are if you have a child who's taking summer school and one of the things that they're supposed to be doing is working on their writing and you are concerned, you can use the services on an as needed basis, you know, for a paper or an essay or a book report, or, um, there's an option for, a, a long-term ongoing, almost like a, like a course, like a parallel course, or, um, We also have uh, workshops, ongoing workshops on different aspects of writing and as I said before with uh, NaNoWriMo with National Novel Writing Month I found that arbitrary deadlines really did wonders for me and this is in some ways doing the same thing for yourselves. If you did a workshop with us or with me or um, did an ongoing tutorial uh, you would have what amounts to homework and you know, okay, you need to do this piece of writing and bring it back or email it back on such and such day. We have access to Skype, we have access to Illuminate, we have access to Google Wave and Google Docs and all these different things. So it's not necessarily just emailing me your paper and I'll do track changes and comments and send it back to you. It can also be much more of a real tutorial, even though we are separated by great distances. And that includes people who are overseas. If you need to write in English and you are concerned, um, the services is available to you as well. There's no reason why we wouldn't be able to do that. So that information is going to be going up on the website and going live in mm, I think it's the second week of May is when we're going to hit hit the big time with that. So I'll be, I'll be reminding you about this and uh, giving you more information as I finish building that site. But those are three things that are coming up. The Craftlit Live Workshop, the eBooks for teachers and tutoring. Oh, Amazon. That's the other thing. Amazon links. I have been for ages an Amazon affiliate, which means that I, that craftlit.com is set up as a portal to Amazon. So, if you click on a link from the show notes that goes to a book on Amazon and you click that link and then buy that fill-in-the-blank book or piece of equipment or whatever, um, Craftlit gets, I think it's four percent of the purchase. So, you know, if you buy a refrigerator, (laughs) start with a link from the Craftlit show notes and then go off and find it. It tracks you this is kind of scary, isn't it? It tracks you. If you start at Craftlit, click on an Amazon link. Don't buy the book I link to, but then go off and buy, you know, a $600 camera. Craftlit gets 4%. So, you know, if you're going to do shopping at Amazon, gosh, I would love it if you would start at Craftlit. I can't see, unfortunately, I can't see, actually it's not unfortunately, it's better for you. I can't see who comes to the show notes and then buys things, I can see what you purchase. And I'm thinking about doing like a greatest hits, a craftlet greatest hits or something so that um, the books that we buy beyond the books that are covered on the show. I'm thinking about, you know, creating a, this is what craftlet listeners are reading. Maybe I'll have you guys email in links to books that you like and stuff. And we'll just have kind of a craftlet library of most beloved books everything by Jasper Ford, stuff like that. So, um, so that's, that is another thing that I wanted to tell you about. So yay, lots of exciting things, lots of exciting things happening. It's all very good. And as our segue, I also got an email from our friend Renee, who is a longtime devoted listener of Craftlit, who wrote, and I'm going to read this to you, uh, she said, I love this book so much. This is Persuasion. And the chapter about the walk is one of my favorites, rivaling the the similar scene in Mansfield Park, where various characters wander around and reveal much about their characters. It has surprised me, though, that you haven't mentioned Austen's connections to the Navy. Didn't she have a youngest brother who didn't do very well in the Navy and another who eventually became an admiral? In my head, the dead brother that's in Persuasion always figured to me as a reflection of her youngest brother and went with Wentworth's success, boy I can't say that five times fast, seems similar to her brother's success. After all, Austin's family was pseudo-gentry, not landed. I've always thought of the Crofts as probably being imagined out of the families she came into contact with while visiting her navy brother. Sorry, I've forgotten his name. Well, I went back and I did more research. Um, Frank, or Francis, and Charles, were her two brothers who went into the navy they were both her her younger brothers and uh frank was actually commended publicly by admiral nelson as being quite a stand up chap and it, it it's true that both of her brothers went into the Navy and one did become a full admiral. The other one, he didn't do badly though. He became a rear admiral and they both had um, relatively dramatic careers, the two of them. Uh, Interesting ones. uh, One of them missed the Battle of Trafalgar by moments because he had been told that he needed to go off and deal with something else. And it was in that you know, week period of him taking a ship and going elsewhere and coming back that he missed the Battle of Trafalgar. Uh, but you know, lots, lots of stuff these guys did in the East Indies, the West Indies, the, this, that, and the other thing. Neither of them were um, complete uh, dropouts or, or losers. Um, however, <laughs> I imagine that they had stories about <laughs> friends of theirs in the Navy who weren't perhaps so remarkable. Um, they, they both lived quite a bit longer than Jane did. Um, I think the, the one who actually died of cholera, I think that was Charles, he, he died at the age of 73. So they, they made it well, well into the 1800s. Um, I think he died in 1865. Anyway, um, but yes, her connection with the Navy was quite uh, comprehensive, and not only did she have a connection with the Navy, but there is a book that I am going to link you to from the show notes called um, Jane Austen and the Navy. (laughs) I know you're shocked, right? Because that title's just so secretive and hiding the truth about itself. Um, It's by a guy named Brian Southam, and it only has one review on Amazon, but uh, it looks quite interesting. And I found another review off-site on a Jane Austen site. That's really, um, it sounds rather lovely. If you know about and care about Jane Austen it sounds really wonderful and I was kind of surprised that it was written by a man I thought that was really quite lovely and in editing this episode today I am cracking myself up and noticing how many times I am using the word quite and oh before holy cow before we go any further in persuasion we have our winner of the March incentive book this is so liberated. 20 Stylish Projects for the Modern Sewist by Meg McElwee, and I put all of the names of the people who donated this month into a little bowl and closed my eyes and picked a name, and she is going to scream when I say this. It is Robin of California, who actually is one of the few people who put on the the PayPal receipt, put, oh, I hope I get this book. I love this book. So, Robin, congratulations! I hope you enjoy it as much as you think you do. And that is the March incentive for our April incentive. We have a new book called Generation T: Beyond Fashion. It looks kind of like the Stitch and Bitch books on the front. It is 120 new ways to transform a T-shirt by Megan Nicolay. And you know, some of this stuff is kind of silly, like a fringe necklace scarf thing out of shredded pieces of t-shirt. But there's also things like baby rompers and Christmas tree skirts and hot pads and dog beds. And, you know, there's just a bunch of really kind of funky, cool things. Some of my favorites are the kids' clothes, the baby clothes, which I think are really quite lovely. So, you know, if you are young and adorable and cute, and you like to sew, and you have a bunch of old t-shirts that you really would rather not throw out, but gosh, you're just not going to wear them anymore. Um, Some great ideas in here. So, if you donate by going to craftlit.com and clicking on the donate button, if you donate during the month of April, you will be entered in the drawing for Generation T Beyond Fashion by Megan Nicolet. Alrighty, now, back to Persuasion. So today chapters 11 and 12. Originally when Persuasion was released it was released in two volumes and chapter 12 was the end of volume one because it is quite a cliffhanger. So I'm just letting you know. That's one of the reasons why I'm putting these two together because they really are a unit. Um, In chapter 11 you will hear uh plans being made that involve uh, Captain Wentworth and everyone. <laughs> everyone. They're going to go to a place called Lyme, which is an ocean village, and they're going to visit some of Captain Wentworth's friends from the Navy, Captain and Mr. Captain and Mrs. Harville and their friend uh, Captain Bennock. Now At the end of chapter 11, you are going to hear Anne turn into an English teacher, and it just, it never ceases to crack me up every time I listen to this part. She just totally, she does, she becomes an English teacher, so that's kind of fun. Um, But chapter 12, which I'm going to just play straight through, chapter 12 has... Disaster strike lime is is wonderful, and in fact, I'm going to link you to some photographs uh, of the uh, the environs the charming, charming village. But one thing plays uh, an enormously pivotal part in chapter twelve, and I had to research this in order to understand exactly what we were talking about. This is the cob. The cob at Lyme is as far as I can tell, a seawall. And it is a seawall unlike any I'd ever heard of before, because here's the cool part. Originally, well, anyway, the first written mention of the cob is from 1328. Just calculate that for a moment. A big old seawall. They talked about how they had um, taken oak piles and driven them into the seabed assumedly at low tide and then they had floated boulders into place by balancing the boulders on ropes between empty barrels you know floating barrels so they drift these giant boulders over into place and then pull on the ropes and the boulders would fall into place and it's like um, in southern California we called them jetties uh, where you had you know big pilings of rock that that went out into the water and um, those were, they weren't break fronts. They weren't to prevent uh, waves from hitting the beach like, a, like a, uh, you know, a tidal wall or a break wall that um, prevents the waves from, from pounding the beach. In Southern California, they were used to keep the sand from eroding. The waves couldn't come all the way in collectively and pull sand back out into the ocean, which, of course, helped prevent you from losing your home, should you be lucky enough to have beachfront property. This is a little different. This is, this is a seawall, and uh, it had actually been destroyed again by a, by a storm shortly before um, Jane Austen uh, started being published. It's, it is, um, it is a seawall. It is wide. It is Like many beach towns, especially in England, um, there's a fairly steep incline down to the sand. And then the cob kind of went from a boardwalk out and around uh, a harbor area, which meant that if you walked on the cob, you were really, as far as anyone's concerned, walking next to the water. Um, Even at low tide, you'd be walking next to the water. There's a Jane Austen blog that I found called Jane Austen Today. This blog explores Jane Austen as we see her today in movies, print sequels, websites, and other modern day media. And there is a blog post from Friday, June 15th. I can't see what year that was, but there are two pictures of the Cobb as filmed in the 2007 version of Persuasion, and I'm going to link you back to this blog page so that you too can see this picture, because when you see it, you're going to think, wow, that's dangerous, Uh, and and of course it is, and and they're there towards the end of, of the year. I mean, you'd think it would be getting chilly and cold and everything, but Austin is very clear. She does tell you in this uh, chapter that the the weather was really quite wonderful, and not at all as foreboding as it appears in these pictures from the 2007 version of Persuasion. However, it does make what happens in Chapter 12 all that much more perilous, and of course, um, we tend to take for granted how lucky we are to live in a world of modern medicine. I say we. I think it's easy for all of us to take for granted how how lucky we are to live in a world of modern medicine. And as much as I uh, like to rely as often as possible on non-drug-related medical solutions to things, I'm also really glad that I could get an MRI last fall when we thought that I had, you know, brain damage or something horrible happened when it turned out it was just gluten. Not being able to rule out the brain tumor thing would have left me very nervous. So, you know, watching what happens in chapter twelve and remembering how limited medicine was at the time is um, sobering. I think the other thing that happens is a character who you have only heard of but not seen before shows up in chapter twelve. And listen to um, how propriety plays into his appearance. This is not the last time you will see him, but it is the first time that he is um, mentioned with any kind of I mean you've heard of him but it's the first time that he's mentioned with any kind of um, agency you know as as a person who can participate in the lives of the Elliots and M Elliot. So we have drama we have we have travel, we have happy times, we have, Captain Wentworth being fabulous. And, uh, and we meet some really lovely characters, beautifully, beautifully described characters. And then we have drama, lots of drama and, uh, and some very funny merry scenes as well. Funny, but kind of you wish you could smack her merry scenes. So with that, I'm going to play the next two chapters of Persuasion for you. And, uh, and I'm going to play them straight through. I hope you enjoy. Chapters 11 and 12 of Persuasion.
1: Chapter 11 The time now approached for Lady Russell's return. The day was even fixed, and Anne, being engaged to join her as soon as she was resettled, was looking forward to an early removal to Kellynch, and beginning to think how her own comfort was likely to be affected by it. It would place her in the same village with Captain Wentworth, within half a mile of him, They would have to frequent the same church, and there must be intercourse between the two families. This was against her. But on the other hand, he spent so much of his time at Uppercross, that in removing thence, she might be considered rather as leaving him behind, than as going towards him. And upon the whole, she believed she must, on this interesting question, be the gainer, almost as certainly as in her change of domestic society, in leaving poor Mary for Lady Russell. She wished it might be possible for her to avoid ever seeing Captain Wentworth at the hall. Those rooms had witnessed former meetings which would be brought too painfully before her, but she was yet more anxious for the possibility of Lady Russell and Captain Wentworth never meeting anywhere. They did not like each other, and no renewal of acquaintance now could do any good, and were Lady Russell to see them together, she might think that he had too much self-possession and she too little." These points formed her chief solicitude in anticipating her removal from Uppercross, where she felt she had been stationed quite long enough. Her usefulness to little Charles would always give some sweetness to the memory of her two months' visit there, but he was gaining strength apace, and she had nothing else to stay for. The conclusion of her visit, however, was diversified in a way which she had not at all imagined. Captain Wentworth, after being unseen and unheard of at Uppercross for two whole days, appeared again among them to justify himself by a relation of what had kept him away. A letter from his friend, Captain Harville, having found him out at last, had brought intelligence of Captain Harville's being settled with his family at Lyme for the winter, of their being, therefore, quite unknowingly, within twenty miles of each other. Captain Harville had never been in good health since a severe wound which he received two years before, and Captain Wentworth's anxiety to see him had determined him to go immediately to Lyme. He had been there for four and twenty hours. His acquittal was complete, his friendship warmly honoured, a lively interest excited for his friend, and his description of the fine country about Lyme so finely attended to by the party, that an earnest desire to see Lyme themselves and a project for going thither was the consequence." The young people were all wild to see Lyme. Captain Wentworth talked of going there again himself, and it was only seventeen miles from Uppercross. Though November, the weather was by no means bad, and in short, Louisa, who was the most eager of the eager, having formed the resolution to go, and besides the pleasure of doing as she liked, being now armed with the idea of merit in maintaining her own way, bore down all the wishes of her father and mother for putting it off till summer, and to Lyme they were to go. Charles, Mary, Anne, Henrietta, Louisa, and Captain Wentworth. The first heedless scheme had been to go in the morning and return at night, but to this Mr. Musgrove, for the sake of his horses, would not consent. And when it came to be rationally considered, a day in the middle of November would not leave much time for seeing a new place, after deducting seven hours, as the nature of the country required, for going and returning. They were, consequently, to stay the night there, and not to be expected back till the next day's dinner." This was felt to be a considerable amendment, and though they all met at the great house at rather an early breakfast hour, and set off very punctually, it was so much past noon before the two carriages—Mr. Musgrove's coach containing the four ladies and Charles's curricle in which he drove Captain Wentworth—were descending the long hill into Lyme, and entering upon the still steeper street of the town itself, that it was very evident they would not have more than time for looking about them before the light and warmth of the day were gone." After securing accommodations and ordering a dinner at one of the inns, the next thing to be done was unquestionably to walk directly down to the sea. They were come too late in the year for any amusement or variety which Lyme, as a public place, might offer. The rooms were shut up, the lodgers almost all gone, scarcely any family but of the residents left, and, as there is nothing to admire in the buildings themselves, the remarkable situation of the town, the principal street almost hurrying into the water, the walk to the cob skirting round the pleasant little bay, which, in the season, is animated with bathing machines and company, the cob itself, its old wonders and new improvements, with the very beautiful line of cliffs stretching out to the east of the town, are what the stranger's eye will seek.' and a very strange stranger it must be, who does not see charms in the immediate environs of Lyme, to make him wish to know it better. The scenes in its neighbourhood, Charmouth, with its high grounds and extensive sweeps of country, and still more, its sweet retired bay backed by dark cliffs, where fragments of low rock among the sands make it the happiest spot for watching the flow of the tide, for sitting in unwearied contemplation. The woody varieties of the cheerful village of Uplime, and above all, Pinny, with its green chasms between romantic rocks, where the scattered forest trees and orchards of luxuriant growth declare that many a generation must have passed away since the first partial falling of the cliff prepared the ground for such a state, where a scene so wonderful and so lovely is exhibited as may more than equal any of the resembling scenes of the far-famed Isle of Wight, these places must be visited, and visited again, to make the worth of lime understood. The party from Uppercross, passing down by the now deserted and melancholy-looking rooms, and still descending, soon found themselves on the seashore, and, lingering only, as all must linger and gaze on a first return to the sea who ever deserved to look on it at all, proceeded towards the cop, equally their object in itself and on Captain Wentworth's account, for in a small house near the foot of an old pier of unknown date were the Harvilles settled. Captain Wentworth turned in to call on his friend the others walked on, and he was to join them on the cob. They were by no means tired of wandering and admiring, and not even Louisa seemed to feel that they had parted with Captain Wentworth long when they saw him coming after them with three companions, all well known already by description to be Captain and Mrs. Harville, and a Captain Bennock, who was staying with them. Captain Bennock had some time ago been first lieutenant of the Laconia, "'and the account which Captain Wentworth had given of him "'on his return from Lyme before, "'his warm praise of him as an excellent young man "'and an officer whom he had always valued highly, "'which must have stamped him well in the esteem of every listener, "'had been followed by a little history of his private life, "'which rendered him perfectly interesting "'in the eyes of all the ladies. "'He had been engaged to Captain Harville's sister, "'and was now mourning her loss. "'They had been a year or two waiting for fortune and promotion. "'Fortune came.' his prize money as lieutenant being great. Promotion too came at last, but Fanny Harville did not live to know it. She had died the preceding summer while he was at sea. Captain Wentworth believed it impossible for man to be more attached to a woman than poor Benwick had been to Fanny Harville, or to be more deeply afflicted under the dreadful change. He considered his disposition as of the sort which must suffer heavily, uniting very strong feelings with the quiet, serious, and retiring manners, and a decided taste for reading and sedentary pursuits. To finish the interest of the story, the friendship between him and the Harvels seemed, if possible, augmented by the event which closed all their views of alliance, and Captain Bennet was now living with them entirely. Captain Harvel had taken his present house for half a year, his taste and his health and his fortune all directing him to a residence inexpensive and by the sea, and the grandeur of the country and the retirement of Lyme in the winter appeared exactly adapted to Captain Bennock's state of mind. The sympathy and goodwill excited towards Captain Bennock was very great. "'And yet,' said Anne to herself as they now moved forward to meet the party, "'he has not, perhaps, a more sorrowing heart than I have. I cannot believe his prospects so blighted for ever.' he is younger than I am, younger in feeling if not in fact, younger as a man, he will rally again and be happy with another. They all met and were introduced. Captain Harville was a tall, dark man with a sensible, benevolent countenance, a little lame, and from strong features and want of health looking much older than Captain Wentworth. Captain Bennock looked and was the youngest of the three, and compared with either of them a little man, He had a pleasing face and a melancholy air, just as he ought to have, and drew back from conversation. Captain Harville, though not equaling Captain Wentworth in manners, was a perfect gentleman, unaffected, warm, and obliging. Mrs. Harville was a degree less polished than her husband, seemed, however, to have the same good feelings, and nothing could be more pleasant than their desire of considering the whole party as friends of their own, because the friends of Captain Wentworth— or more kindly hospitable than their entreaties for their all promising to dine with them. The dinner already ordered at the inn was at last, though unwillingly, accepted as an excuse, but they seemed almost hurt that Captain Wentworth should have brought any such party to Lyme, without considering it as a thing of course that they should dine with them. There was so much attachment to Captain Wentworth in all this, and such a bewitching charm in a degree of hospitality so uncommon, so unlike the usual style of give-and-take invitations and dinners of formality and display, that Anne felt her spirits not likely to be benefited by an increasing acquaintance among his brother officers. These would have been all my friends, was her thought, and she had to struggle against a great tendency to lowness. On quitting the cob, They all went indoors with their new friends, and found rooms so small as none but those who invite from the heart could think capable of accommodating so many. Anne had a moment's astonishment on the subject herself, but it was soon lost in the pleasanter feelings which sprang from the sight of all the ingenious contrivances and nice arrangements of Captain Harville, to turn the actual space to the best account, to supply the deficiencies of lodging-house furniture, and defend the windows and doors against the winter storms to be expected. The varieties in the fitting up of the rooms, where the common necessaries provided by the owner, in the common indifferent plight, were contrasted with some few articles of a rare species of wood, excellently worked up, and with something curious and valuable from all the distant countries Captain Harville had visited, were more than amusing to Anne. Connected as it all was with his profession, the fruit of his labors, the effect of its influence on his habits, the picture of repose and domestic happiness it presented, made it to her a something more or less than gratification. Captain Harville was no reader, but he had contrived excellent accommodations and fashioned very pretty shelves for a tolerable collection of well-bound volumes, the property of Captain Bennock. His lameness prevented him from taking much exercise, but a mind of usefulness and ingenuity seemed to furnish him with constant employment within. He drew, he varnished, he carpentered, he glued, he made toys for the children, he fashioned new netting needles and pins with improvements, and if everything else was done— sat down to his large fishing net at one corner of the room. Anne thought she left great happiness behind her when they quitted the house, and Louisa, by whom she found herself walking, burst forth into raptures of admiration and delight on the character of the Navy, their friendliness, their brotherliness, their openness, their uprightness, protesting that she was convinced of sailors having more worth and warmth than any other set of men in England, that they only knew how to live, and they only deserved to be respected and loved. They went back to dress and dine, and so well had the scheme answered already that nothing was found amiss, though its being so entirely out of season, and the no through-fare of lime, and the no expectation of company, had brought many apologies from the heads of the inn. Anne found herself by this time growing so much more hardened to being in Captain Wentworth's company than she had at first imagined could ever be, that the sitting down to the same table with him now, and the interchange of the common civilities attending on it—they never got beyond—was become a mere nothing. The nights were too dark for the ladies to meet again till the morrow, but Captain Harville had promised them a visit in the evening, and he came, bringing his friend also, which was more than had been expected, it having been agreed that Captain Bennock had all the appearance of being oppressed by the presence of so many strangers. He ventured among them again, however, though his spirits certainly did not seem fit for the mirth of the party in general. While Captains Wentworth and Harville led the talk on one side of the room, and by recurring to former days supplied anecdotes in abundance to occupy and entertain the others, it fell to Anne's lot to be placed rather apart with Captain Bennock, and a very good impulse of her nature obliged her to begin an acquaintance with him. He was shy, and disposed to abstraction, but the engaging mildness of her countenance, and gentleness of her manners, soon had their effect, and Anne was well repaid with the first trouble of exertion. He was evidently a young man of considerable taste in reading, though principally in poetry, and besides the persuasion of having given him at least an evening's indulgence in the discussion of subjects which his usual companions had probably no concern in, she had the hope of being of real use to him in some suggestions as to the duty and benefit of struggling against affliction, which had naturally grown out of their conversation. For, though shy, he did not seem reserved. "'It had rather the appearance of feelings glad to burst their usual restraints. "'And having talked of poetry, the richness of the present age, "'and gone through a brief comparison of opinion as to the first-rate poets, "'trying to ascertain whether Marmion or Lady of the Lake were to be preferred, "'and how ranked the Jaur and the Bride of Abydos, "'and moreover, how the Jaur was to be pronounced, "'he showed himself so intimately acquainted with all the tenderest songs of the one poet "'and all the impassioned descriptions of hopeless agony of the other.' He repeated with such tremulous feeling the various lines which imaged a broken heart or a mind destroyed by wretchedness, and looked so entirely as if he meant to be understood, that she ventured to hope he did not always read only poetry, and to say that she thought it was the misfortune of poetry to be seldom safely enjoyed by those who enjoyed it completely, and that the strong feelings which alone could estimate it truly were the very feelings which ought to taste it but sparingly his look showing him not pained, but pleased with this allusion to his situation, she was emboldened to go on, and feeling in herself the right of seniority of mind, she ventured to recommend a larger allowance of prose in his daily study and on being requested to particularise, mentioned such works of our best moralists, such collections of the finest letters, such memoirs of characters of worth and suffering as occurred to her at the moment, as are calculated to rouse and fortify the mind by the highest precepts and the strongest examples of moral and religious endurances. Captain Bennick listened attentively, and seemed grateful for the interest implied, and, though with a shake of the head, and sighs which declared his little faith in the efficacy of any books on grief like his, noted down the names of those she recommended, and promised to procure and read them. When the evening was over, Anne could not but be amused at the idea of her coming to Lyme to preach patience and resignation to a young man whom she had never seen before, nor could she help fearing, on more serious reflection, that, like many other great moralists and preachers, she had been eloquent on a point in which her own conduct would ill bear examination. End of chapter eleven. Chapter twelve Anne and Henrietta, finding themselves the earliest of the party the next morning, agreed to stroll down to the sea before breakfast. They went to the sands to watch the flowing of the tide, which a fine south easterly breeze was bringing in with all the grandeur which so flat a shore admitted. They praised the morning, gloried in the sea, sympathized in the delight of the fresh feeling breeze, and were silent. Henrietta suddenly began again with, oh yes, I am quite convinced that, with very few exceptions, the sea air always does good. There can be no doubt of its having been of the greatest service to Dr Shirley after his illness last spring twelve months. He declares himself that coming to Lyme for a month did him more good than all the medicine he took, and that being by the sea always makes him feel young again. Now I cannot help thinking it a pity that he does not live entirely by the sea. I do think he had better leave Uppercross entirely and fix at Lyme. Do not you, Anne? Do not you agree with me that it is the best thing he could do both for himself and Mrs. Shirley? She has cousins here, you know, and many acquaintance, which would make it cheerful for her, and I am sure she would be glad to get to a place where she could have medical attendance at hand in case of his having another seizure.' Indeed, I think it quite melancholy to have such excellent people as Dr. and Mrs. Shirley, who have been doing good all their lives, wearing out their last days in a place like Uppercross, where, excepting our family, they seem shut out from all the world. I wish his friends would propose it to him. I really think they ought. And as to procuring a dispensation, there could be no difficulty at his time of life and with his character. My only doubt is whether anything could persuade him to leave his parish.' he is so very strict and scrupulous in his notions—over-scrupulous, I must say. Do not you think, Anne, it is being over-scrupulous? Do not you think it is quite a mistaken point of conscience when a clergyman sacrifices his health for the sake of duties, which may be just as well performed by another person? And at Lyme, too, only seventeen miles off, he would be near enough to hear, if people thought there was anything to complain of." Anne smiled more than once to herself during this speech, and entered into the subject as ready to do good by entering into the feelings of a young lady as of a young man, though here it was of a lower standard for what could be offered but general acquiescence. She said all that was reasonable and proper on the business, felt the claims of Dr. Shirley to repose as she ought, saw how very desirable it was that he should have some active, respectable young man as a resident curate, and was even courteous enough to hint at the advantage of such resident curates being married." "'I wish,' said Henrietta, very well pleased with her companion, "'I wish Lady Russell lived at Uppercross, and were intimate with Dr. Shirley. I have always heard of Lady Russell as a woman of the greatest influence with everybody. I always look upon her as able to persuade a person to anything. I am afraid of her, as I have told you before, quite afraid of her, because she is so very clever, but I respect her amazingly, and wish we had such a neighbour at Uppercross.' Anne was amused by Henrietta's manner of being grateful, and amused also that the course of events and the new interests of Henrietta's views should have placed her friend at all in favour with any of the Musgrove family. She had only time, however, for a general answer, and a wish that such another woman were at Uppercross, before all subjects suddenly ceased on seeing Louisa and Captain Wentworth coming towards them. They came also for a stroll till breakfast was likely to be ready, but Louisa, recollecting immediately afterwards that she had something to procure at a shop, invited them all to go back with her into the town. They were all at her disposal. When they came to the steps leading upwards from the beach, a gentleman at the same moment preparing to come down, politely drew back, and stopped to give them way. They ascended and passed him, and as they passed, Anne's face caught his eye, and he looked at her with a degree of earnest admiration which she could not be insensible of. She was looking remarkably well, her very regular, very pretty features having the bloom and freshness of youth restored by the fine wind which had been blowing on her complexion, and by the animation of eye which it had also produced. It was evident that the gentleman, completely a gentleman in manner, admired her exceedingly. Captain Wentworth looked round at her instantly in a way which showed his noticing of it he gave her a momentary glance, a glance of brightness which seemed to say, "'That man is struck with you, and even I, at this moment, see something like Anne Elliot again.' After attending Louisa through her business, and loitering about a little longer, they returned to the inn, and Anne, in passing afterwards quickly from her own chamber to their dining-room, had nearly run against the very same gentleman as he came out of an adjoining apartment. She had before conjectured him to be a stranger like themselves, and determined that a well-looking groom, who was strolling about near the two inns as they came back, should be his servant. Both master and man being in mourning assisted the idea. It was now proved that he belonged to the same inn as themselves, and this second meeting, short as it was, also proved again, by the gentleman's looks, that he thought hers very lovely, and by the readiness and propriety of his apologies, that he was a man of exceedingly good manners.' He seemed about thirty, and, though not handsome, had an agreeable person. Anne felt that she should like to know who he was. They had nearly done breakfast when the sound of a carriage, almost the first they had heard since entering Lyme, drew half the party to the window. It was a gentleman's carriage, a curricle, but only coming round from the stable-yard to the front door. Somebody must be going away. It was driven by a servant in mourning— The word Curricle made Charles Musgrove jump up that he might compare it with his own. The servant in mourning roused Anne's curiosity, and the whole six were collected to look by the time the owner of the Curricle was to be seen issuing from the door, amidst the bows and civilities of the household, and taking his seat to drive off. "'Ah!' cried Captain Wentworth instantly, and with half a glance at Anne. "'It is the very man we passed.' The Miss Musgroves agreed to it and, having all kindly watched him as far up the hill as they could, they returned to the breakfast-table. The waiter came into the room soon afterwards. "'Pray,' said Captain Wentworth immediately, "'can you tell us the name of the gentleman who has just gone away?' "'Yes, sir, a Mr. Elliot, a gentleman of large fortune, came in last night from Sidmouth. Dare say you heard the carriage, sir, while you were at dinner, and going on now for Crickern in his way to Bath and London. Elliot!' Many had looked on each other, and many had repeated the name before all this had been got through, even by the smart rapidity of a waiter. "'Bless me!' cried Mary. "'It must be our cousin. It must be our Mr Elliot. It must indeed. Charles Anne must not it. In mourning, you see, just as our Mr Elliot must be. How very extraordinary! In the very same inn with us, Anne, must not it be our Mr Elliot? My father's next heir? Pray, sir,' turning to the waiter, Did not you hear, did not his servant say whether he belonged to the Kellynch family? No, ma'am. He did not mention no particular family, but said his master was a very rich gentleman, and would be a baronite some day. There, you see, cried Mary in an ecstasy, just as I said, heir to Sir Walter Elliot. I was sure that would come out if it was so. Depend upon it, that is a circumstance which his servants take care to publish wherever he goes. But Anne, only conceive how extraordinary! I wish I had looked at him more. I wish we had been aware in time who it was, that he might have been introduced to us. What a pity we should not have been introduced to each other. Do you think he had the Elliot countenance? I hardly looked at him, I was looking at the horses. But I think he had something of the Elliot countenance. I wonder the arms did not strike me. Oh, the great coat was hanging over the panel and hid the arms. So it did. Otherwise I am sure I should have observed them, and the livery too. If the servant had not been in mourning, one should have known him by the livery.' "'Putting all these very extraordinary circumstances together,' said Captain Wentworth, "'we must consider it to be the arrangement of providence that you should not be introduced to your cousin.' When she could command Mary's attention, Anne quietly tried to convince her that their father and Mr Elliot had not, for many years, been on such terms as to make the power of attempting an introduction at all desirable. At the same time, however, it was a secret gratification to herself to have seen her cousin— and to know that the future owner of Kellynch was undoubtedly a gentleman, and had an air of good sense. She would not, upon any account, mention her having met with him the second time. Luckily Mary did not attend to their having passed close by him in their earlier walk, but she would have felt quite ill-used by Anne's having actually run against him in the passage, and received his very polite excuses, while she had never been near him at all. No, that cousinly little interview must remain a perfect secret.' "'Of course,' said Mary. "'You will mention our seeing Mr. Elliot the next time you write to Bath. I think my father certainly ought to hear of it. Do mention all about him.' Anne avoided a direct reply. But it was just the circumstance which she considered as not merely unnecessary to be communicated, but as what ought to be suppressed. The offence which had been given her father many years back she knew. Elizabeth's particular share in it she suspected.' and that Mr Elliot's idea always produced irritation in both was beyond a doubt. Mary never wrote to Bath herself. All the toil of keeping up a slow and unsatisfactory correspondence with Elizabeth fell on Anne. Breakfast had not been long over, when they were joined by Captain and Mrs Harville and Captain Benwick, with whom they had appointed to take their last walk about Lyme. They ought to be setting off for Uppercross by one, and in the meanwhile were to be all together and out of doors as long as they could. Anne found Captain Bennet getting near her, as soon as they were all fairly in the street. Their conversation the preceding evening did not disincline him to seek her again, and they walked together some time, talking as before of Mr. Scott and Lord Byron, and still as unable as before, and as unable as any other two readers, to think exactly alike of the merits of either till something occasioned an almost general change amongst their party, and instead of Captain Bennick, she had Captain Harville by her side. "'Miss Elliot,' said he, speaking rather low, "'you have done a good deed in making that poor fellow talk so much. I wish he could have such company oftener. It is bad for him, I know, to be shut up as he is. But what can we do? We cannot part.' "'No,' said Anne, "'that I can easily believe to be impossible. But in time, perhaps—' We know what time does in every case of affliction, and you must remember, Captain Harville, that your friend may yet be called a young mourner. Only last summer, I understand. Aye, true enough, with a deep sigh. Only June. And not known to him, perhaps, so soon. Not till the first week of August, when he came home from the Cape, just made into the grappler. I was at Plymouth, dreading to hear of him. He sent in letters, but the grappler was under orders for Portsmouth.' There the news must follow him, but who was to tell it? Not I. I would as soon have been run up to the yard arm. Nobody could do it but that good fellow, pointing to Captain Wentworth. The Laconia had come into Plymouth the week before, no danger of her being sent to sea again. He stood his chance for the rest, Wrote up for leave of absence, but without waiting the return, travelled night and day till he got to Portsmouth, rode off to the grappler that instant, and never left the poor fellow for a week.' "'That's what he did, and nobody else could have saved poor James. "'You may think, Miss Elliot, whether he is dear to us.' Anne did think on the question with perfect decision, and said as much in reply as her own feeling could accomplish, or as his seemed able to bear, for he was too much affected to renew the subject, and when he spoke again it was of something totally different.' Mrs. Harville's giving it as her opinion that her husband would have quite enough walking by the time he reached home, determined the direction of all the party in what was to be their last walk. They would accompany them to their door, and then return and set off themselves. By all their calculations there was just time for this, but as they drew near the cob, there was such a general wish to walk along it once more, all were so inclined, and Louisa soon grew so determined, that the difference of a quarter of an hour it was found, would be no difference at all. So with all the kind leave-taking, and all the kind interchange of invitations and promises which may be imagined, they departed from Captain and Mrs. Harful at their own door, and still accompanied by Captain Bennock, who seemed to cling to them to the last, proceeded to make the proper adieux to the cob. Anne found Captain Bennock again drawing near her. Lord Byron's dark blue seas could not fail of being brought forward by their present view— and she gladly gave him all her attention as long as attention was possible. It was soon drawn perforce another way. There was too much wind to make the high part of the new cob pleasant for the ladies, and they agreed to get down the steps to the lower, and all were contented to pass quietly and carefully down the steep flight, excepting Louisa. She must be jumped down them by Captain Wentworth. In all their walks he had had to jump her from the stiles. The sensation was delightful to her. The hardness of the pavement for her feet made him less willing upon the present occasion. He did it, however. She was safely down, and instantly, to show her enjoyment, ran up the stairs to be jumped down again. He advised her against it, thought the jar too great, but no. He reasoned and talked in vain. She smiled and said, I am determined, I will. He put out his hands. She was too precipitate by half a second. She fell on the pavement of the lower cob, and was taken up lifeless. End of chapter twelve, part one. CHAPTER twelve, part two. There was no wound, no blood, no visible bruise; but her eyes were closed; she breathed not; her face was like death. The horror of the moment to all who stood around. Captain Wentworth, who had caught her up, knelt with her in his arms, looking on her with a face as pallid as her own, in an agony of silence. "'She is dead! She is dead!' screamed Mary, catching hold of her husband, and contributing with his own horror to make him immovable. And in another moment Henrietta, sinking under the conviction, lost her senses too, and would have fallen on the steps but for Captain Bennock and Anne, who caught and supported her between them. "'Is there no one to help me?' were the first words which burst from Captain Wentworth in a tone of despair, and as if all his own strength were gone. "'Go to him, go to him!' cried Anne. "'For heaven's sake, go to him. "'I can support her myself. "'Leave me and go to him. "'Rub her hands, rub her temples. "'Here are salts. "'Take them, take them!' Captain Benwick obeyed, and Charles at the same moment disengaging himself from his wife, they were both with him, and Louisa was raised up and supported more firmly between them, and everything was done that Anne had prompted, but in vain.' while Captain Wentworth, staggering against the wall for his support, exclaimed in the bitterest agony, Oh, God, her father and mother! A surgeon, said Anne. He caught the word. It seemed to rouse him at once, and saying only, True, true, a surgeon this instant, was darting away when Anne eagerly suggested, Captain Benwick, would it not be better for Captain Benwick? He knows where a surgeon is to be found. Everyone capable of thinking felt the advantage of the idea, and in a moment, it was all done in rapid moments. Captain Bennock had resigned the poor, corpse-like figure entirely to the brother's care, and was off for the town with the utmost rapidity. As to the wretched party left behind, it could scarcely be said which of the three who were completely rational was suffering most—Captain Wentworth, Anne, or Charles, who really a very affectionate brother, hung over Louisa with sobs of grief— and could only turn his eyes from one sister to see the other in a state as insensible, or to witness the hysterical agitations of his wife calling on him for help which he could not give. Anne, attending with all the strength and zeal and thought which instinct supplied to Henrietta, still tried at intervals to suggest comfort to the others, tried to quiet Mary, to animate Charles, to assuage the feelings of Captain Wentworth. Both seemed to look to her for directions. Anne— Anne! cried Charles. What is to be done next? What in heaven's name is to be done next? Captain Wentworth's eyes were also turned towards her. Had she not better be carried to the inn? Yes, I am sure. Carry her gently to the inn. Yes, yes, to the inn, repeated Captain Wentworth, comparatively collected and eager to be doing something. I will carry her myself. Musgrove, take care of the others.' By this time, the report of the accident had spread among the workmen and boatmen about the cob, and many were collected near them, to be useful if wanted, at any rate to enjoy the sight of a dead young lady, nay, two dead young ladies, for it proved twice as fine as the first report. To some of the best-looking of these good people Henrietta was consigned, for though partially revived, she was quite helpless, and in this manner, Anne walking by her side, and Charles attending to his wife, they set forward, treading back with feelings unutterable, the ground which so lately, so very lately, and so light of heart they had passed along. They were not off the cob before the Harvels met them. Captain Bennock had been seen flying by their house with a countenance which showed something to be wrong, and they had set off immediately, informed and directed as they passed towards the spot. Shocked as Captain Harville was, he brought senses and nerves that could be instantly useful, and a look between him and his wife decided what was to be done. She must be taken to their house, all must go to their house, and await the surgeon's arrival there. They would not listen to scruples. He was obeyed, they were all beneath his roof, and while Louisa, under Mrs. Harville's direction, was conveyed upstairs and given possession of her own bed, assistance, cordials, restoratives, was applied by her husband to all who needed them. Louisa had once opened her eyes, but soon closed them again without apparent consciousness. This had been proof of life, however, of service to her sister, and Henrietta, though perfectly incapable of being in the same room with Louisa, was kept by the agitation of hope and fear from a return of her own insensibility. Mary, too, was growing calmer. The surgeon was with them almost before it had seemed possible. They were sick with horror while he examined, but he was not hopeless— The head had received a severe contusion, but he had seen greater injuries recovered from. He was by no means hopeless. He spoke cheerfully. That he did not regard it as a desperate case, that he did not say a few hours must end it, was at first felt beyond the hope of most, and the ecstasy of such a reprieve, the rejoicing, deep and silent, after a few fervent ejaculations of gratitude to heaven had been offered, may be conceived.' The tone, the look, with which, thank God, was uttered by Captain Wentworth, Anne was sure could never be forgotten by her, nor the sight of him afterwards as he sat near a table, leaning over it with folded arms and face concealed, as if overpowered by the various feelings of his soul, and trying, by prayer and reflection, to calm them. Louisa's limbs had escaped, there was no injury but to the head. It now became necessary for the party to consider what was best to be done as to their general situation. They were now able to speak to each other and consult. That Louisa must remain where she was, however distressing to her friends to be involving the Harvels in such trouble, did not admit a doubt. Her removal was impossible. The Harvels silenced all scruples, and as much as they could, all gratitude. They had looked forward and arranged everything before the others began to reflect— Captain Bennock must give up his room to them, and get another bed elsewhere, and the whole was settled. They were only concerned that the house could accommodate no more, and yet perhaps, by putting the children away in the maid's room, or swinging a cot somewhere, they could hardly bear to think of not finding room for two or three besides, supposing they might wish to stay. Though with regard to any attendance on Miss Musgrove, there need not be the least uneasiness in leaving her to Mrs. Harville's care entirely." Mrs. Harville was a very experienced nurse, and her nursery-maid, who had lived with her long and gone about with her everywhere, was just such another. Between these two she could want no possible attendance by day or night, and all this was said with the truth and sincerity of feeling irresistible. Charles, Henrietta, and Captain Wentworth were the three in consultation, and for a little while it was only an interchange of perplexity and terror— Uppercross, the necessity of some one's going to Uppercross, the news to be conveyed, how it could be broken to Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove, the lateness of the morning, an hour already gone since they ought to have been off, the impossibility of being in tolerable time. At first they were capable of nothing more to the purpose than such exclamations. But after a while Captain Wentworth exerting himself, said, We must be decided, and without the loss of another minute. Every minute is valuable— "'Someone must resolve on being off for Uppercross instantly. Musgrove, either you or I must go.' Charles agreed, but declared his resolution of not going away. He would be as little encumbrance as possible to Captain and Mrs. Harville, but as to leaving his sister in such a state, he neither ought nor would. So far it was decided, and Henrietta at first declared the same. She, however, was soon persuaded to think differently.' the usefulness of her staying, she who had not been able to remain in Louisa's room, or to look at her without sufferings which made her worse than helpless. She was forced to acknowledge that she could do no good, yet was still unwilling to be away, till, touched by the thought of her father and mother, she gave it up. She consented. She was anxious to be at home. The plan had reached this point when Anne, coming quietly down from Louisa's room, could not but hear what followed, for the parlour door was open. Then it is settled, Musgrove, cried Captain Wentworth, that you stay and that I take your sister home. But as to the rest, as to the others, if one stays to assist Mrs. Harville, I think it need be only one. Mrs. Charles Musgrove will, of course, wish to get back to her children, but if Anne will stay, no one so proper, so capable as Anne. She paused a moment to recover from the emotion of hearing herself so spoken of. The other two warmly agreed with what he said, and she then appeared. You will stay, I am sure— You will stay a nurser, cried he, turning to her and speaking with a glow, and yet a gentleness which seemed almost restoring the past. She coloured deeply, and he recollected himself and moved away. She expressed herself most willing, ready, happy to remain. It was what she had been thinking of, and wishing to be allowed to do. A bed on the floor in Louise's room would be sufficient for her, if Mrs. Harfel would but think so. One thing more, and all seemed arranged— though it was rather desirable that Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove should be previously alarmed by some share of delay, yet the time required by the Uppercross horses to take them back would be a dreadful extension of suspense, and Captain Wentworth proposed, and Charles Musgrove agreed, that it would be much better for him to take a chaise from the inn, and leave Mr. Musgrove's carriage and horses to be sent home the next morning early, when there would be the further advantage of sending an account of Louisa's night. Captain Wentworth now hurried off to get everything ready on his part, and to be soon followed by the two ladies. When the plan was made known to Mary, however, there was an end of all peace in it. She was so wretched and so vehement, complained so much of injustice in being expected to go away instead of Anne, Anne who was nothing to Louisa, while she was her sister and had the best right to stay in Henrietta's stead. Why was not she to be as useful as Anne, and to go home without Charles, too, without her husband, no, it was too unkind, and in short, she said more than her husband could long withstand, and as none of the others could oppose when he gave way, there was no help for it. The change of Mary for Anne was inevitable. Anne had never submitted more reluctantly to the jealous and ill-judging claims of Mary, but so it must be, and they set off for the town, Charles taking care of his sister, and Captain Bennet attending to her. She gave a moment's recollection as they hurried along to the little circumstances which the same spots had witnessed earlier in the morning. There she had listened to Henrietta's schemes for Dr. Shirley's leaving Uppercross. Farther on she had first seen Mr. Elliot. A moment seemed all that could now be given to any one but Louisa, or those who were wrapped up in her welfare. Captain Bennock was most considerately attentive to her, and as united as they all seemed by the distress of the day, she felt an increasing degree of goodwill towards him, and a pleasure even in thinking that it might, perhaps, be the occasion of continuing their acquaintance. Captain Wentworth was on the watch for them, and a chaise in foreign waiting, stationed for their convenience in the lowest part of the street. But his evident surprise and vexation at the substitution of one sister for the other, the change in his countenance, the astonishment, the expressions begun and suppressed, with which Charles was listened to, made but a mortifying reception of Anne, or must at least convince her that she was valued only as she could be useful to Louisa. She endeavoured to be composed, and to be just. Without emulating the feelings of an Emma towards her Henry, she would have attended on Louisa with a zeal above the common claims of regard for his sake, and she hoped he would not long be so unjust as to suppose she would shrink unnecessarily from the office of a friend. In the meanwhile she was in the carriage. He had handed them both in, and placed himself between them and in this manner, under these circumstances, full of astonishment and emotion to Anne, she quitted Lyme. How long the stage would pass, how it was to affect their manners, what was to be their sort of intercourse, she could not foresee. It was all quite natural, however. He was devoted to Henrietta, always turning towards her, and when he spoke at all, always with the view of supporting her hopes and raising her spirits. In general, his voice and manner were studiously calm— To spare Henrietta from agitation seemed the governing principle. Once only, when she had been grieving over the last ill-judged, ill-fated walk to the cob, bitterly lamenting that it had ever been thought of, he burst forth, as if wholly overcome. "'Don't talk of it! Don't talk of it!' he cried. "'Oh, God, that I had not given way to her at the fatal moment! Had I done as I ought! But so eager and so resolute! Dear sweet Louisa!' Anne wondered whether it ever occurred to him now to question the justness of his own previous opinion as to the universal felicity and advantage of firmness of character, and whether it might not strike him that, like all other qualities of the mind, it should have his proportions and limits. She thought it could scarcely escape him to feel that a persuadable temper might sometimes be as much in favour of happiness as a very resolute character. They got on fast— Anne was astonished to recognise the same hills and the same object so soon. Their actual speed, heightened by some dread of the conclusion, made the road appear but half as long as on the day before. It was growing quite dusk, however, before they were in the neighbourhood of Uppercross, and there had been total silence among them for some time. Henrietta, leaning back in the corner, with a shawl over her face, giving the hope of her having cried herself to sleep, when, as they were going up their last hill, Anne found herself all at once addressed by Captain Wentworth. In a low, cautious voice he said, "'I have been considering what we had best do. She must not appear at first. She could not stand it. I have been thinking whether you had not better remain in the carriage with her, while I go in and break it to Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove. Do you think this is a good plan?' She did. He was satisfied and said no more. But the remembrance of the appeal remained a pleasure to her, as a proof of friendship— and of deference for her judgment a great pleasure. And when it became a sort of parting proof, its value did not lessen. When the distressing communication at Uppercross was over, and he had seen the father and mother quite as composed as could be hoped, and the daughter all the better for being with them, he announced his intention of returning in the same carriage to Lyme, and when the horses were baited, he was off. End of chapter 12 Part 2
0: Wahoo! So, intrigue. And, you know, Anne and Captain Wentworth spent, actually, some quality time together. So, this is promising, no? Well, I hope you have a great week. I have so much more to tell you next week about some special secret surprises for the trip to London Bath and Wales. And don't forget this week, you can go to the show notes at craftlit.com for Erica's pattern, Adri's butterfly. You'll find a link in the upper left-hand sidebar of the show notes. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit and knit circus online magazine offering three rings of knitting sewing and fun you can check out the fun spring issue at www.knitcircus.com and please visit the blogs and sites of craftlet supporters those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes the show notes can be found at craftlet.com Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one off.